Hello everyone, welcome to Tennis with an Accent. Uh, this is Sake Bosch in the show. Uh, tennis season is moving on after the first major. Last week we had uh, quite a week. We had Jerry Wesley coming back, winning in India. Then we had Morphys winning uh, a tournament as well. On uh, that note, uh, let me introduce my guest, uh, Damien Coast. If you are on Twitter, you follow uh, him uh, probably. If you don't, uh, you should follow him. He's a very fresh, new, good voice in the tennis Twitter community. Uh, and yeah, let me bring my guest in and he can introduce himself much better. Hello, Damien. How are you? Hello. Uh, good morning, everyone. Thank you very much for the, for the nice introduction. Uh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a student from Poland. I'm 21. I'm 21 year old at the moment. And uh, I'm a freelance tennis writer. So if you have any inquiries, call me. <laughs> Yeah, so what have you been doing as far as, you know, part-time tennis coverage? Uh, what uh, what events are you covering or mm-hmm. uh, who do you associate your work with? Are you a freelancer? Tell our audience what you do. Yeah, I'm, I, I mostly associate my work with the uh, lastwordontennis.com website. I cover pretty much all things tennis for them, but I am also very focused on the ATP Challenger Tour as a, you know, as a sort of passion of mine uh, a niche maybe i can i can feel in the tennis coverage i feel like you know no one practically covers the atp challenger the challenger tour as as well as it should be even even the the atp is kind of you know the, the publicity is not so big on that tour uh i would certainly like like to invite any listeners to to follow the the challenger tour i think what throws off most people is the apparent difference in the quality of play between the main tour and uh, and that circuit. But honestly, I, I can't just tell you and because you're not going to believe me, but you have to see, see it for yourselves. All of these guys playing there have received years of professional training. The discrepancy between num- word number 50 and word number 500 is definitely not as busy, not, not, not as big as you might think. Uh, this is actually, you know, there's a great question to ask yourself when watching the Challenger Tour. Uh, what is the missing piece in the in the puzzle? You know, what is the missing aspect of the game that the, that the player should, you know, that a player would require to get to the top echelon of the game? And I, you know, you have to trust me. The answer is rarely simple. The, also, I would like to really recommend you to go and visit uh, a Challenger Tour event on site. There are currently about 160 events each year, so there's a good chance you have one close to home. It's a great experience for, for on-site viewers. I mean, the players are very easily ac- accessible. They are very close to the crowds. You can talk and take a picture with practically anyone. Like imagine trying to say something to Novak Djokovic at, at an ATP 250 and here, you know, players wander by themselves pretty much around the grounds and you can get much closer to them at, than at main tour events. They are also not that tired with crowd interactions, with press conferences, with any questions you can have for them. I actually saw a, a Twitter user um, I think just a couple of days before said say that she when she asked uh, Mohamed Savat for for an autograph he literally thanks her for it that's how you know that's that's yeah. how it works there. Yeah, that's that's really a different world and uh, and I mean I haven't been to Challenger Tour I've done the Newport 250 myself 
mm-hmm. in my limited exposure to covering tournaments and the other tournament that I've gone are Masters 1000 which are ATP's biggest tournaments so the clear difference even there as a part of the media uh, body is that you can walk up to a player it's very uh it's very low key environment compared to a Masters 1000 and I haven't been to a 500 yet so i can only imagine what you're saying is so true of the challenger tour so if someone wants to i'm sure there are a lot of experts on twitter who know tennis way more than me and you and you know so but if someone wants to start watching challenger what are some what are some of the sources uh, they can look up to i know there's some streaming available through the atp site what else uh, how is it accessible on tv yeah it's great it's great that you brought it up I don't think it's accessible on TV in any in any way in any country but there's a great website called livestream.com/atp this is the official streams uh it's much better than tennis tv actually because for example tennis tv you know the the, the coverage of the main tour events they don't they currently don't have singles qualifying they miss a lot of doubles matches and on the livestream.com/atp you can actually watch every single challenger tour match barring any like court changes that would that would bring a match to a to a non-stream court but the basics you know are that are that you can, you can watch everything every doubles match every singles match i think not many people know about it yet it's only i think the third year running for them but also every match is uh, you know stays on the site you can we can watch it on replay you can watch any match from the last from the from the last seasons or or from or a lot of them from the 2018 season so that's i think it's actually a great you know a great move from the ATP to to get a lot to get more publicity to the ATP Challenger Tour and that's what the players needs definitely because the you know the, the money they yeah. that they get is not big and and a lot of players struggle for struggle to make a living struggle to pay for the expensive travels expensive coaching so tr- really just go there and you're also going to help by watching because you know yes. the many the more people the more people watch the more people get interested in the challenger tour the the better the lives of the players will be and and you're right i mean you know tennis has many issues and a lot of uh, us discuss that regularly on tennis twitter but one issue that doesn't exist is the level of quality on the players that are playing on the challenge challenger tour because i call with the revolving door anyone who is ranked 60 or 70 or from down to 100 very well if you take your eye off due to an injury or due to some bad run could be playing the challengers next year because that door is very i think same player sometime are getting wild cards or playing qualies in 250s and 500s depending on you know what else is going on and the same players will be competing in the challenger so the, the quality is really good and i also encourage people to to follow if you don't follow that uh, that closely uh, so let's switch to some of the players because uh, a lot of my mm-hmm. personal friends who dial in of course you know their tennis and golden era they're talking about the big talents of Tsitsipas and Medvedev and of course the big 3 and you know what not So what are some of the players that someone who's listening to the podcast should keep an eye on uh who's already making a successful transition from challenger to ATP tour uh you may think those are household names for you because you follow them but there are a lot of people out there you know who's tennis uh I'm I'm not saying they're casual fans but they're focused on the stars mm-hmm. so enlighten us with some of the names that are coming up or they've already come up on the ATP tour from challengers 
Well, I very much like the Scandinavian trio, <laughs> as, as I like to call them. There's one guy from Norway, one guy from Sweden, and one guy from Finland. So I'm talking about, uh, obviously, Casper uh, Rud, who's been on the main tour pr pretty much for, for about a year now. But the other two guys, Mikael Limer and Emil Rusuvuari, they both won four Challenger Tour events last season. And now they're just starting to make their breakthroughs at the, at the ATP Tour. I think most of you must have seen Imer at the Austrian Open when he lost to Kachanov in, in a five-setter. That was, I think, all, all over four and a half hours. He actually used to have a very defensive game. He used to be a clay court specialist back, back at the ATP Challenger Tour. But with the improvements that he that he has made with made to his game, because he you know he he himself said he said that to beat better players, to beat tougher opponents at the at the main tour, uh, playing just defense was not enough. He had to improve his offensive game. He had to start winning winning the points by himself. And right now he's playing the European indoor circuit. He he, he was he actually had to pull out of of Rotterdam qualies with some slight injury, but he was playing Montpellier. Uh, right now he's going to Marseille to play qualies too. Uh, Emil Rossovuari is a, is a young Finn with a much bigger game. A very complete player, really. He has a very potent, very potent serve. Um, huge strokes from both wings. And he also uh, won four Challenger Tour events last season. He started this year playing uh, the Canberra Challenger and just lost to Philipp, Philipp Schreiber in the final. And now he's also touring Europe uh, for the for the indoor circuit. He qualified for the for Montpellier and uh, got his first his first ATP main draw winner over Denis Novak. Then he lost to Norbert Kombos in the in the second round. Now he's also he also played Rotterdam qualies, lost in the second round. But these are the players that are kind of you know became breakthrough stars in the in the second half of the of the last season. And now they have like six months to to simply get the rankings up before they they start defending a lot of points in the in the second half of the season. Also, some of the players that maybe are a little bit younger that but and, and they they still haven't made their their, their breakthroughs yet at the, on the main tour. But for example, there's a very interesting 18-year-old called Brandon Nakashima in the. Uh, he's playing mostly the US, the American, uh, the the American events, the USTA Pro Circuit. But he, for example, pushed Francis Tiafoe very close last week. He, it, it's good to see that he doesn't really have the the problem that most Americans of the of the current generation have. So his game is not that serve plus forehand oriented. He has a great backhand too, just a very very solid game. And great mental composure too. I mean, he's all the praised all the time for being very, very focused and concentrated at all times. Uh, also, uh, very soon you're gonna see uh, the main draw debut of Carlos Alcaraz Garcia. This is actually just a 16-year-old from Spain. He was he made the, he made headlines last year. Uh, in April, I believe, when he won his first uh, ATP Challenger to main draw match against Yannick Sinner, actually, so another youngster. He made it against, um, he made it in April uh, as a 15-year-old, I think 15, year, 15 years and nine months. So 
it was one of the very, uh, I think he is fourth on the all-time list of the youngest ATP challenger to remain draw match winners. And right now he started his year playing uh, ITF 15 case. He he's 14-1 for the year, I believe, but he's preparing for for a for a ATP major debut at the at the Rio Open. Uh, so next week uh, he received the he received the wild card. He surely get what gets a lot more this season to to Spanish events like Barcelona or Madrid. I think he also received a, a qualification a qualifying wild card to Miami. So that's also another one you're gonna see a lot. He's he was he can be considered as a clay court specialist, but he also pulled off a couple of ITF victories on, on hard courts at the beginning of the year. He has like a, the you know the the typical Spanish game that that you expect from a from a clay courts player from that country. Well, there you go. So quite a few names there. Even I learned a lot, uh, and uh, and I'm sure a lot of you who are on Twitter. Uh, and I think again, Damien becomes a very good account to follow because I learned of. I mean, that's lazy on my part. I learned of Rusevori through I think one of Damien's tweet, and just I went and you know put the name in, and you know guilty as charged. And then I found, wow, this guy is like such a big talent. I should have known more. And then Eric Jonsson, who was also on the podcast a few months ago, is a good account to follow because they are always talking about tennis beyond the the main tour. Where this is where you know the revolving door of tennis is where the new talent keeps coming in. And when Eric was on the podcast a few months ago, we talked about Yannick Sinner, who's of course now an established player and uh, and known uh, in, in in tennis community. Of course, still very young, still a lot of development, a lot of work to do. But in ter- established in terms of a name that's uh, that's easily you know spelled, easily mentioned in conversations. So you know, Damien, let's uh, talk a little bit about Rus- Rusuvori. Uh, uh, what are some of the strengths of this lad's game? I saw him in the qualities of Australia. He lost a close one, I remember, uh, to a French player, if I'm not mistaken. He won, three, yeah. yeah, he won a couple of matches. So what are some of the early impressions? I mean, what are his strengths? He's an all-court player, what we see usually uh, in ATP these days. or uh, Talk more about him. Well, he's basically a power baseliner. I don't think he's that comfortable at the net, but obviously if the, if the point... <laughs> Uh, you know, forces him to he he can play there, but generally he bases his game on a as I said a very potent first serve and then just you know huge strokes of both wings. He had a lot of performances last year on the Challenger Tour where he you know just he had he mixed matches where he was just you know just just maybe maybe not throwing the ball uh, back to back to, back inside the court, but he was maybe a little bit pushy and you know just not really being that aggressive. But then he also had performances where he just blew away his opponents. He, for example, double bagels, I think, Roberto Roberto Ortega Almedo at Glasgow. He, in his title-winning runs, he had, you know, in, in, in all of them, he had a couple of matches where he just absolutely obliterated the opponent. For example, also uh, Mateo Viola, that was at Mallorca, 6-love uh, and 6-1 in the final. We actually haven't seen... We actually haven't really seen that from him this year. He's struggling a bit to to transition to the ATP tour so far. I mean, he was great at that Canberra challenger. He defeated players like Taro Daniel, Daniel Kopfer, also uh, Yannick Sinner. But right now, he's I, I think he's maybe a bit overwhelmed by the by the occasion. I mean, uh, also that loss against Bonchetri you, you talked about. I mean, when the draw for the qualies came out. 
everyone was like, okay, that's the easiest section. Reservoir is just gonna, it's just gonna to, it's just going to come through that without a problem. There was, I think, Bonshot defeated Darcy's in the first round with a, with a lot of issues, and then, uh, you know, it's uh, absolutely inexplicable. Inexplicable. Sorry, what what happened there? I, everyone was surprised by that, but right now he's. You know he's 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 a little bit older than 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 for example Sinner. He's like he his breakthrough came came later. But as I said, he defends pretty much zero points until until June, where he started playing challengers you, last season. You, so you, you think it's more more of a you know narrative question? But you think this mm-hmm. helps if someone breaks onto the main tour a little later, because the challenger tour is somewhat still. Uh, you know, it's like your completion of your tennis education in a way. If you don't go to university, you're playing challengers in place. Mm-hmm. Into, you know, there are less crowds, empty courts, uh, it's a slightly more relaxed environment. Of course, you're playing for money and you're playing for points. You think that helps better uh, than someone who just storms into the tour like Shapovalov did. And then, you know, you have to reset with the tour, the expectations. And it took Dennis, you know, a couple of good, couple of years to establish himself, you know, after that run into 2017. So I know it's a wider question. You can use players as examples, but what do you think is better? You you like the path of a Rusuvori who comes slightly older uh, by winning a lot of titles and spending time. Development is slightly, not delayed, but taking more time than suppose a Sinner or a Shapovalov. I think everyone has some kind of a, a reset period. Like besides some examples like Rafa Nadal who basically went and never let go. But... Even for example, Roger Federer, he he was he had that period where you know in uh, he he won his first challenger in 1998 actually his only challenger to the title, he just stormed on the way on the main tour he defeated Sampras at Wimbledon and then there was that period when when he just had to for for some reason the you know the the, the mental side of 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 people works that like that we we see it with Sinner for example right now. He pretty much hit the top last season with that next-gen finals title and Ortiz A challenger. I mean, it has to be very hard for a person, you know, to to be expected to achieve so much. Sinner has only won one match so far this season, and it's not like he's even been playing poorly. But you know, simply playing with that baggage on your side. I think Shapovalov also 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 had it. Uh, after that, that miraculous Montreal run, also the the U.S. Open fourth round. Then he also had a period of like a year where he just wasn't as good, just wasn't as good mentally. He couldn't win cl- close matches. Just being expected to to win is is sometimes tough to deal with a with a young player. So I think it's maybe a little bit better with with you know when you when you enter the main tour at, as to, as a 20 21 year olds just like just like Immer and and Rusevori do at the moment maybe that will help them to to limit the the resetting periods to to as as little as they can yeah very well said i think reset period happens for everyone and it it'll even happen to say late starters i mean if someone you know becomes a presence a little later and and and, you, and i think you kind of captured it really well. So let's also talk about uh, the Challenger Tour. It's also the living place of a lot of players who are trying to come good. And then the great story is Muhammad Safat. You know, uh, you told a story about how a girl, you know, a fan asked him for autograph and he thanked him. And I met, I had the 
opportunity to meet uh, this uh, this player in Newport a couple of years ago. And uh, he was such a delight and very approachable, nice guy. But the story is pretty phenomenal how he's coming from a system in Egypt where there is no tennis system, he told me, literally. it's uh, mm-hmm. and, and, and then tennis is a very expensive sport. So there are people like, there are so many players like Safat who are on the tours. Grinding is kind of a word that doesn't describe best. But yeah, it's, they're trying to make a living. They're going different cities. They're planning their travel. I'm sure it's, it's not cheap. And... Uh, and then you play tennis for money it can be very tough and then and he finally won his first title again a stat that i didn't know so i don't know if you're comfortable talking about him have you followed his career a little bit what what do you know of his uh, stay on the atp challenger tour and he's made few entrances in the main tour but he's pretty much been a normal resident of the challenger tour talk about his great story yeah i think he's a great idol for the egyptian kids definitely you might well you might not like like what i'll say now but you know the tennis integrity unit has really targeted egypt in the past couple of years and they found a lot of irregularities but the country is like very associated with much fixing at this point but i think it's amazing that savat is staying clean in this in this regard the only thing he he has on himself is like failing to report something that he an offer that he received but which is obviously not a good thing but it's nothing compared to what people think of egyptian tennis at the moment it's a very inspiring story too like at at 29 year old he qualified for a grand slam for the first time this year so it's actually not not a, the, the title in launceston is not a one-off and now he took his first atp challenger tour title he had three finals before in the past couple in the past four years i think yeah and as far as I remember, I think he participated in 133 events before. So that's, you know, to, to win his first one, uh, ATP Challenger Tour events, of course, I mean. So to do it now is a, is a great testament to his perseverance and also the hard work he puts in. His ranking is now higher than, than it ever was. So hopefully he can get opportunities He'll definitely be seated at every Challenger Tour event. He will try out some main tour qualities, probably. I mean, his game is very... He has no apparent weaknesses. Maybe maybe he doesn't really have any like consistent attacking weapons, but I absolutely love to watch him. He, he also has some brilliant shot-making potential. Definitely his mental side is what's, is what's been improving. He nicked a couple of very close sets in that really decided the... The outcome of the match in in Launceston. Also, he played Matthew Edben, Edben today at, at Bengaluru, and he missed a lot of opportunities to close the second set, and then was down in the third, but just really turned it on, just up his level. I also uh, had the pleasure of uh, maybe not meeting him, but like saying two or three words to him uh, at Sopot last year at Sopot Challenger. He also, I also felt like he's a very you know, just a great, great human being. So I am certainly very happy that, that, that you can assure us of that. Hmm. No, very, very well said. And uh, again, uh, listening to what Damien is saying, you know, the tour has so many stories and uh, it's just incredible what some of these athletes are doing. And, you know, tennis can definitely fix so many issues. And one of them and is uh, the prize money with the challenger, which I believe has gone up, but I'm not qualified to speak on that. Uh, as I haven't done the proper research. So let's talk about another player who has been as high as number 35, Jiri Vesely, has been injured, uh, lack of form, and this is not the first rodeo that he's gone back to the challenger and come back, and he came back pretty strong. Uh, 
So how closely have you followed his uh, his progress over the last year or two? And uh, were you surprised that he came out in that field in Pune? Well, one couldn't really be surprised that he came out of the field in Pune because we all know how, maybe not bad, but how challenger-like the the, left, the the field there was. I mean, besides Benoit Per, I think the, the second-seeded player was Ricardas Berankis, right, at, at 66 in the ATP rankings. So it was basically just a challenger after after Benoit Per lost. So definitely great from Vesely to take care of the, you know, take advantage of the opportunity. He also saved match points in in two matches, so that gives you an gives you an account of how how tough it was. I think no one no one has to really tell you that that Iji Vesely is a is a great talent. He, for example, you know, he he defeated Djokovic on clay four years ago, right? We, I don't think really. You know, the, right now he's only a shadow of this player, and one has to wonder why. I I really have no idea. I think it's mostly connected with the confidence. Maybe he. I often see him maybe pushing a little bit too much with the forehand, which was which was a you know the lefty forehand was his was his most dominant weapon back back a few years ago when he used to play on the ATP tour. Uh, that win in Pune will give him a great chance because for the past couple of years he was struggling to to advance to keep keep his ranking around the top 100, which, as we know, is a very big tre- very big threshold for for you know, playing on the main tour and playing on the ATP Challenger Tour. So right now with the title in Pune, he advanced I think to ATP number 72, which for at least a year until his Pune. Pune points drop will probably keep him in the in the top 100, so maybe he can work his way back. I really don't think he's you know he's he's playing as well as he was back then. But then you just it's not like you can lose your tennis abilities. It's not like the skill just goes away. So I think if 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 you can you know get he, get your confidence up, then after some time, then it's then it certainly will. Yeah, I mean, confidence is a, is a beautiful thing. It can come and go. Again, one yeah. of the players I closely follow is Ernest Gulbis, and it was fun to watch him make that run in Australia. And he's another guy who plays very aggressive tennis, still backs his game. Uh, but his game, the way it's structured, especially the forehand, it can go away, and it can go away for months. And when he won those five matches in Australia, you can start seeing, especially after the Felix uh, Ogier-Aliassim match against Bedene, you can see Gulbis's confidence was there. He was going for his shots, yeah. and confidence can do wonders. And, you know, otherwise, I followed him in 2018 very closely. In the Challenger Tour, he had a losing streak, and he didn't win, I think, matches till Bordeaux or something, which is in May, leading up to the French Open. So, so yeah, I mean, Wesley is a great story. And like you said, uh, with the ranking of 72, he is firmly planted there. He can have many looks. Uh, he'll probably even get uh, into Masters 1000s or at least the qualies, depending on that ranking. So, so yeah, that's again that's again this, uh, a story that just validated our point that someone who was was uh, as high as 35, and then we don't know what's going on the other side of the tour because we usually we as most fans have followed the ATP tour and then you see a familiar name like Wesley come back. So let's talk about other winners uh, this past week. Gael Monfils won in Montpellier. And uh, he's uh, he's been a mainstay. And there's a crazy stat there, right? He's reached like a final for like what 16 seasons in a row. Yeah, that's incredible. That's something you wouldn't have associated with Monfils. 
of course, the talent is there and uh, has always been there. It's a little frustrating uh, if you are his fan because, uh, you know, that's, again, the cliche that surrounded his tennis, one of the best athletes, and then hasn't sometime been, you know, hasn't competed well. But I think overall a phenomenal career if you start looking at these stats. At 16 years, he's made a final and still looking pretty strong. What, what were your thoughts after watching him win uh, that tournament last week? Yeah, the main reason why it doesn't seem like Monfils could could have 16 years in a row because is because his his records in the finals is quite dreadful, right? He's only won nine of the 30. But anyway, I think he's been going a little bit under the radar this season. But he's been one of the strongest players of 2020 from the get-go. I mean, at the ATP Cup, he only lost to Novak Djokovic, then then to Dominic Thiem at the at the Australian Open. He obviously has has a lot of game on indoor indoor surfaces. He he is the defending champion in Rotterdam, so he had a he had a great February last season too. There was the, there is that kind of a big ranking point difference currently in the ATP top ten between the top seven maybe and and then the next guys. That's why maybe Monfis was kind of you know it's kind of surprising to see him uh, you know in the in the top ten at the moment. But he's definitely doing great so far. As long as he's not tired, then he's definitely going to do some good stuff this week too. I mean, he he's always been, you know, just just mentioned as someone who, can, who could possibly take a Grand Slam at one point. It hasn't really happened. I think a lot of people right now think it, it, it's not possible anymore. He's definitely, you know, the, the athleticity he has, the... The big shots he sometimes pulls off. That's very flashy, very flashy to watch. Like the the crazy stuff he does that makes him a crowd favorite. But in general, I think he's had a bit of a problem for all of his career for not really not being able to come out of his comfort zone. Maybe he he's a lot of the times you you see him defending a lot where where you know he has. You know these big shots. He can he can play a very different game. Also, the lack of fitness, lack of you know the the, the all the injuries that have that have hampered him throughout the years, and and it also makes his the the achievement the the 16 finals in a row, the 16 years where he made an ATP final in a row, that also makes this achievement much greater because he he had a lot of injury breaks. I think only only Federer, Djokovic, and Nadal have the have as many years right now. I think Nadal is one behind, but but if he if he makes a final this year, then he then he'll tie Monfils. So that definitely makes him a very unique unique person in the on the on the tour. And I mean, there you go. There's an interesting stat that Monfils reaching 30 finals. 30 finals would have been considered a success for most players. And financially, I'm sure Monfils has done pretty well. But again with Monfils, uh, or any player, they have their own uh, narrative that follows them. And Monfils was seen as a major winner for the longest of time, a potential major winner. And now to only win nine out of those 30 finals, I guess that's what separates him from the likes of, uh, I don't know, maybe Burdick and Ferrer and Songa, who probably yeah. have better winning percentage. And he was just behind that group uh, of players. And uh, of course, the story is still not finished, but it's going to be very unlikely for him to see... Uh, to get over that line of winning a major, because majors are, you know, it's very it's very tough to win a major in tennis. Uh, but yeah, Gael Monfils uh, winning a 250 is still, a, you know, it's, it's a big story because the tour is pretty ruthless. You 
you lose a step and you could be out of the top 100. So Gal Monfi is still top 10. Uh, are you also surprised that uh, given his career, like he, what is his career high ranking? I mean, I don't know. I think he probably hasn't gone higher than six, I think. If I have to just take I don't a guess. Think he did, yeah. yeah, so that's also as great as it is that he stayed close to 10 a few times since 2016 when he was working with Mikhail Tilstrom. They made 30 exactly, years Exactly, as semis. you said, number six, yeah. Yeah, so, but again, it's uh, it's always a title. I'm, I'm fascinated by these titles. Uh, these titles have uh, a different trajectory because uh, you are very young, but I'm sure you're a student of the game. Back in the day, uh, mm-hmm. the likes of uh, Lendl and uh, Becker and all these guys. The tour was a little different. They would play a lot of these tournaments. But with the Federer and Adal Djokovic, the consistency sure. and ascendancy to the top and everybody reaching finals. So all these guys play maximum 15, 16 tournaments. They play uh, Dubai here and there or a Basel or Nadal plays Barcelona, you know. But overall, it's just the slams and the 1000s. Back in the day, you know, there used to be a tournament called Philadelphia Indoor. I don't know if it was the 250, but Sampras, Lendl, all these guys used to play. So now the fields are depleted. So that that brings me to a different question. Uh, again, Paul Timmons, one of the guys we all follow, uh, you know, who's uh, you know not afraid to give opinions. Again, he was on the podcast, uh, you know. Uh, so he was saying something about the New York Open. Uh, what do you feel of the New York Open? Do you think that's kind of a, uh, a bad mismatch uh, at this type of the of the calendar because fans keep talking about their empty stands and they don't attract the players? Kyrgios did not come. Or you think it's just the function of the top players not playing 250s anymore, so most 250s will look like this. And uh, New York City is a big, of course, one of the biggest cities in the world. You would think uh, this tournament would draw crowds, but this is not in Manhattan. This is in Long Island. So that's quite a commute. Because if it was in Manhattan or Brooklyn, the train system will connect you. Uh, your thoughts on that? I don't know if uh, we didn't prepare for this, but this is a this is an opinion that's been floating in tennis Twitter for the last two, three years since New York Open was launched. They haven't had the crowds. And uh, by, by the looks of it, I don't know how long will this event stay if this is what they continue to do as far as retaining crowds. Yeah, I think the, the field is actually pretty good for a, for an ATP 250. So, as you said, it's probably, you know, you can't really expect much more than Isner, Raonic and Opelka at this point. I mean... Really, the the top players rarely play it. Play two fifties. There are um, you know players like Medvedev, Tsitsipas, Monfils. They are all playing the European indoor circuit right now. Maybe it's I don't know. Maybe it's a matter of just too many ATP two fifties. I don't know. I mean the the empty the, the stadiums have been very empty. But I also I also saw that the the tournament organizers are. Uh, for example, thrown out someone who had a, a press accreditation for tweeting photos of uh, tweeting photos and saying like out loud that there are there there, there is there just isn't crowd there just isn't any there just aren't any people in the crowd i mean we see we see it a lot in in actually in many different atp 250s for example in pune there was also a problem there are some spots in the calendar that simply don't fit well i think maybe also the the publicity behind the tournaments i mean just i think maybe the tournaments are not you know making a lot of promotional activities before the events i we don't currently have a have an atp 215 in poland but that's what i that's what i kind of gather from what people say that even if 
if they're living in a in a city with a, with an ATP 250 events, they they don't really hear about it. They only know about it because they're tennis fans. It's not like you can, you know, just a, a regular, you know, com- common people will will find out about it. I can't. I don't really know the the geography of of New York very well, but uh, from what I from what I gathered, also from other people saying talking about that, I think the the Long Island, uh, uh, you know, geo, geogra- geography of the geography of New York is also a huge problem here. Hmm. Yeah, yeah I, I've lived there for two years, and I I can totally understand. Uh, okay, but Long Island also has people. It's not like nobody lives in Long Island. There are a lot of people in Long Island. Mm. But it's a more car market. They have a Long Island Railroad uh, commuter train that goes into Manhattan and then you can go to Brooklyn and Queens from there. But yeah. Uh, but I think also the other point is America here in the last 20 years I've stayed and uh, after Roddick, there hasn't been a superstar. And Americans love, like most countries, they have a rich history in tennis, unlike most countries. So they love their own. They were spoiled with the Sampras, Courier, Agassi generation. So after Roddick, Fish and Blake... Isner is pretty good, I mean, for what he's done for the game, but it's just, I don't know, uh, in this Federer Nadal Djokovic era, how well tennis players, even national tennis players, sell. Uh, if you put one of these guys here, I'm sure the tournament will be a sold out, even in February in Long Island. Uh, Definitely, because you know when um, the you know the, the crowds at ATP 250s, they usually, I, I, I believe so at least, they are usually not like avid tennis watchers most of them are probably just common people living in the area mm-hmm. and if, if you had Sampras, Roddick, Courier, Connors or whoever playing there these common people would would simply go see them and if your top player is John Isner then it's obviously a great thing but not for the USA right you yeah. you know the, the the Americans always want to have the best in the world, not the and, and, and even in Pune, as an as an Indian, of course, I haven't lived in India for like you know two decades now. But even in Pune, which was before that, the Gold Flake Chennai Open, they they drew some stars. Rafter played there, Becker played one year, Kefalnikov and Bavrinka, Chilich. So even Pune, like you said, the field was weaker than ever this year. But at the same time, Indian tennis audience are not as spoiled as the American tennis audience, who've had great players in the game winning majors. So whoever comes to the Indian shores. If you're a tennis fan, you'll still go watch, okay, this is my only time two or three times of the year with the Challenger Tour and the ATP Tour. That's my only chance to see players. Of course, if you put a Wawrinka or a Medvedev, that's going to fill stadiums anywhere in the 250 cities. But yeah, New York, I don't know. if uh, That's also a function of not getting like a big name. Uh, again, uh, even Sam Query said like, you know, a few years ago, like mm-hmm. uh, he was a top-ranked American and he was not, you know, he could walk through like Manhattan, I think. And get unnoticed, get not get noticed. So that's where tennis is, I think, in, in most cities in America. And I, I think Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic have been embraced as international stars. But I think the local guys. I think that's also a function of New York Open not doing well, uh, because geographically, I think it does make sense. Because after this, uh, there is uh, Delray Beach and then Acapulco, and some of the action is in Europe. So yeah, you can come here and play here. Uh, because there always used to be a tournament uh, in early spring in U.S., Philly indoors. The SAP Open was there when Roddick was playing. So I think right. for me, it's just not having that marquee player because uh, I think Long Island, I, I don't think Long Island versus Manhattan is a big thing if there was a player. I mean, there's a there's a huge Greek population in Queens, New York. If you put Stefano Tsitsipas in there, I believe he's going to draw crowds. So, yeah, it, it, yeah, go ahead. I don't know. 
So anyway, I think, uh, yeah, uh, we covered quite on this topic, which wasn't a planned topic. And uh, before we wrap this conversation up, uh, I want to ask you, how's Hubie Hercotch being received back home? I mean, that guy, to me, is uh, a sleeper. I mean, of course, who follows tennis know how talented he is. I think he's just slightly below the radar because uh, he's not in the top 15 or top 10 like these other guys. Sitsipas, Medvedev, they're like established players. who They've beaten the big three. Uh, but I think game-wise, he's not behind, of course. Uh, some fine-tuning has to be done. Uh, what is your take on him and how is he received in, uh, how is he received back home? Yeah, I, I think what I like about him, as as you said about the fine-tuning, I mean, I think he's he's really addressing the issues that he has. Obviously, having a great coach, Craig Boynton, um, helps a lot here. But I think it's also to his very humble personality. I mean, he he really is he, he really gives you the feel that he's doing everything he he can to become a top player. For example, he's very inspired with with Novak Djokovic's diet. He 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 is on the he you know to in order to improve his physicality, he he went he went on the same went on the same one. Um, as to his like the, the the humbleness, he also for example Roger Federer said that when the, when they practiced together. Um, I don't know a couple of years back, uh, Hurkacz was basically saying uh, sorry after every missed ball, which was very funny to Federer. But at the same time, this really humble personality doesn't really show at at the big stage. It doesn't show at, at big matches. You can see he gets really focused when he plays against a, a top player, like for example that Djokovic match at Wimbledon. Uh, while, for example, yesterday's match against City Pass, it was like an absolute error fest from six, seven, six, two zero up. Uh, Hurkacz won just two games after that, but I think it also showed showed that he's he's yeah, working. Yeah, what the happened staff. there? I I was going to watch that match, but then uh, mm-hmm. I didn't get a chance to watch the tape. Uh, version of the match, but what I've been reading on Twitter is that uh, Pass did not do many adjustments. It's Hurkac, like you said, just gave it away. Yeah, I mean the the first set was actually some of the best Hurkac I have ever seen. I think he he led five four and forty love, but then had a terrible choke, but wanted the tiebreak anyway. Anyhow, he played. I mean. He played a lot of great serve plus ones. He was getting a lot of bad returns from Tsitsipas when serving to his backhand. Uh, I think that that was also an issue back in the days he, that his serve was maybe a bit too one-dimensional. So we've seen players, you know, get used to it after after a couple of ta- after a, a couple of games, a couple of sets. Some of he was actually hitting for his backhand a lot. Which also was an issue, but uh, was an issue at some point. I mean, he he the, he, he he found some kind of a, a way to absolutely just slam his body into into a backhand, and he he got some great winners down the line there. He was also after that that choke that I mentioned. He regrouped very well, played a great tiebreak. He used his net play quite a bit. I think he's also improved that. He keeps playing doubles. Uh, which I believe is probably a, a you know just an option to 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 also work on that. He 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 had a lot of great great tough smashes, and then he just went six seven six to all up, and absolutely disappeared. I mean, it was mostly Hurkacz's errors. Maybe Tsitsipas was also you know staying longer in the rallies, but it was mostly just just errors from Hubert. I'm not sure what to think about that honestly. I also think he's like a 
uh, rhythm confidence player. He we, we, we see it a lot in his results that he can get like four opening round losses in a row. There were a couple of instances of that in the in the past year. And then when he just gets that 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 game going, he can pull off great runs like in Young Wells last season or the title at Winston Salem. And Auckland this year, right? He did well at Auckland and yeah, ATP Cup. Auckland yeah. semifinal. Yeah, he had that six six victories to kick off his year. He's uh, well in Poland. He's treated very, you know, as a, as a big star already. I think I think maybe he's given a little bit too much credit at times. I mean, people probably like make him out to be like just as Tsitsipas or Medvedev at this point like people think he's that much of a of a talent which he maybe is but you know he hasn't really shown that yet so I would I would still I would still you know just stand with that I definitely I definitely love about him that he he has that that big stage personality that yeah. when he comes out for a big match he's definitely much more focused than usual and likely to play great yeah, I like the easy power and the, the the kick serves. I mean, when me and Mert did the preview for the Australian Open podcast and I asked him because I really look up to Mert for his opinions and he kind of validated uh, where I was coming from. A lot of people compare Hachanov to Safin. Uh, mm-hmm. I think the only comparison there is the backhand uh, because the grip is too extreme on the forehand from, for Karan Hachanov. But I see a lot of uh, Marat Safin overall in Hubi Herkaj. Easy power from the back, huge kick serves can unleash the forehand and still developing game is not afraid to go to the net because a young Safin was doing all those things before the injuries. Of course, Safin is a tall order. At best, he was mixing up with Federer and Sampras. Hubi Herkatsch has a lot of work to do. Uh, so let's play a, a funny game here. Uh, Herkatsch is ranked, I think, close to 30 right now. At the end yeah. of the season, I'll go first and you can go second. I think he's going to be ranked anywhere between 13 and 18. What do you think? Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe eighteen twenty-five, just a little bit lower than you. Yeah. Okay, so this is a unofficial bet. Let's compare notes in November. <laughs> All right. So I really enjoyed this conversation. Uh, I plan to keep it close to thirty-five minutes, but your knowledge is, you know, it's just really uh, intense as far as very detailed knowledge for. All tours on uh, the ATP side, so it was fun having you. Hopefully, we can have you back again, Damien. Uh, keep up the good work, and thanks, thanks. for coming to Tennis with an Accent. Welcome to this segment of the Tennis with an Accent podcast. I'm Matt Zemek with uh, Sakib Ali. Sakib, how how are you doing after this latest week of tennis? Yeah, it's been a busy week. I mean. We just realized tennis never really takes time off, uh, maybe except for the few weeks at the tail end. And after the first major, we already warmed up to so many different narratives in tennis. And uh, one is uh, Vashik Paspasil's rise uh, back to prominence. He's been on quite a run. Um, we touched upon him briefly in the first segment, but I want, I'm want i very curious to get your take on how Vashik has turned... Uh, series of injuries and a ranking drop and he was in news for ATP Council but now his racket is doing the talking. So how impressed are you and what have you seen of him lately? Well, you know, the thing that strikes me about Pospisil is that he had a good run at uh, PK Cup along with Denis Shapovalov and it's been Pospisil, the old veteran, not Shapovalov, uh, the, the young pup who has had a, an especially strong start 
uh, to the 2020 season. And that was one of the themes of the Australian Open for me, that you know you did see um, Zverev make his way to the semis, and you did almost see Dominic Team bust up the big three uh, control of the majors. But for the most part, for the most part, Saka, at the at the Australian Open, certainly on the men's side, um, the, the the younger players didn't really do that well. Uh, you know, for, for the most part. And so the Pospisil Shapovalov comparison highlights the notion that the, that the veterans, at least you know, it's and this season's very early, so it, things can definitely change. You know, we we're still uh, a few weeks from Indian Wells, you know, and, and uh, a significant point reallocation uh, stage of the season. But at this early stage, it's the veterans for the most part. Who are putting in the work, and the the, the young players uh, are struggling. And it's not just Shapovalov in Canada; it's also Felix Auger-Aliassime, and uh, but Pospisil with uh, his run to the final in France. You know, it, it's showing that you know he, with, that his momentum at the end of the 2019 season it has carried into 2020. We can't really say the same thing for Shapo uh, and Felix. So that that's a that's a pretty notable story, and you know, Pospisil obviously world class in doubles. To see him find ways to get better in singles, you know, it's it's a it's a testament to his perseverance, and that that's definitely the kind of story we should be celebrating. It's a very good advertisement for men's tennis. It is, and uh, just keeping informed of the podcast by the time this is released, we only talk about stuff that has happened. So as we record this late Wednesday evening, Pashpasil also got a big win today over uh, in form, uh, Daniel Medvedev. Of course, his form hasn't been as stellar uh, in this year, but he's still pretty, he's, he came this year with huge momentum, huge expectations. So that win has to count for something, Matt. Oh, absolutely, without a doubt. And, uh, you know, players are trying to make statements. Uh, it, it has to be said that, you know, February is not, uh, a month with you know huge high-end tournaments. You don't have a Masters 1000 in February, but you know players are trying to establish who and what they are and how they want to play in the month of February. So within that context, it's it's definitely a noticeable development. Uh, let me stay with Medvedev for one more question here. Me and Susie were having a DM conversation today, and uh, she said this was a time when, of course, it's a young season. Uh, There's a time when Medvedev is expected to consolidate on what he built, and I threw in the idea of uh, a generic notion that a lot of time players who have a breakthrough season uh, go through a reset phase, but then Susie came back, you know, Medvedev didn't really, this is not a reset period because he was, he announced himself in 2018 and built upon a stellar 2019. So where do you see his early season? I know it's too early to start worrying about his form, uh, but do you think this is a time when most of the tennis world expects him to consolidate what he really has shown in the last six, seven months? Well, I think that you know when when realizing uh, his his early exit to Vavrinka at the Australian Open, and you know Vavrinka ha- is has a well deserved uh, reputation over several years as a as a great big match player. And Vafrenka certainly needs to receive ample credit for 
how he was able to steer that match in his favor after falling behind two sets to one. But nevertheless, uh, I think that match shows it's not so much a criticism of Medvedev from where I sit. I think that match reminds us how ridiculous it was that that Medvedev got on that roll from August through October when he basically could not miss finals. I mean, he made the final of one high-end tournament after another. I think that the the loss to Fafrinka in Australia just shows us how amazing it was that Medvedev was able to get hot and stay hot for several weeks, you know, over the course of three different months on the calendar, August, September, October. So I think if if uh, people were thinking that Medvedev was going to just stroll into 2020 and reclaim that every week dominance, I think that was an unrealistic expectation. That having been said, the way he competed against Nadal in the U.S. Open final, the way he was able to keep himself together against Djokovic in Cincinnati, uh, and then you know still uh, bounce back in Shanghai uh, it, a- after the U.S. Open final against Rafa, you know he 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 showed some real staying power on tour, and I do still think that you know he has significantly elevated himself in the conversation and, and to make the more precise point Sakib, I don't think that one loss in Australia to a three time major champion and future tennis hall of famer, Vavrinka, that shouldn't undo what he established in the second half of 2019. you know, it's, it's, it's just a, it's a, it's a quirk of the tennis calendar that, you know, Medvedev is obviously, you know, an elite hard court player, and and yet, if you miss the Australian Open, if you don't break through there, then you have to wait several months to get your other really big shot at a hard court major at the U.S. Open in, in early September. So, you know, is Medvedev going to be a beast on clay? And, and is he going to do anything on grass? It's really hard to say. So he, he's in an in-between position here. And I think that the main thing for him is to, you know, be... Uh, um, to, to stand out at Indian Wells in Miami. He did not do especially well in either one of those tournaments last year. I don't think he reached the quarterfinals in either one. So the Indian Wells Miami really is the next big priority for Medvedev this season. And uh, how he does there, that will determine his outlook as he, as he goes into clay and grass. Uh, you know, if he can do something on clay, uh, you know, he did beat Djokovic last year um, in Monte Carlo, you know, so he might be able to hang on to that memory as, a, as motivation and maybe a catapult to something bigger. But ultimately, you know, it's the U.S. Open in many ways is already the, the most important event Danil Medvedev is going to play in 2020. There's not going to be a single event more important than that, barring something unlikely, like maybe... Uh, Dominic team gets upset at the fourth round of Roland Garros and Medvedev gets a surprise path to the semis or the final, maybe something unlikely like that is going to happen. But most likely, you know, we're already in, we're just in February, but already it seems that the U S open is really now the centerpiece of Medvedev's season. Yeah, I think uh, I don't, I couldn't disagree there because uh, Medvedev again uh, has shown a lot of potential. He's beaten, he's had some results in grass, uh, you know, throughout his young career but yeah hard coach is uh, where his strengths lie and yeah uh, 
that that'll be the focal point. And maybe with the Olympics this year, who knows? But yeah, U.S. Open will be the defining moment after his semi-early exit in Melbourne. Uh, let's switch gears here to Serena Williams uh, for a second now, because uh, she doesn't have that kind of a problem. She can play on almost any court in the world. So she was uh, seen in action last week at Fed Cup. So we definitely deserve uh, she we, we deserve to talk about that because uh, uh, talk about what you saw of her in that weekend and where is her game at again you know she has a date with history she's you know uh we don't have to judge her week in week out but still it's pretty intriguing whenever she gets on the tennis court and i think uh over to you well you know from reading you know we have and for for those who are listening to this podcast we have direct message uh thread discussions at tennis with an accent so our, our our contributors and commentators we we kick it around uh in the dm threads and and the main theme or focus of our dm threads relative to serena is just how slow she looks uh, on court and, and how slow she looked in in fed cup and it's a very interesting discussion because um she moved very easily through her auckland draw before coming to Australia for the Australian Open. And in the first two rounds of Australia, she looked, you know, pretty solid, fairly clean. I mean, it, it, everything seemed to be coming together for her. But, you know, we've had in our DM threads, you know, that, that the, the, the point was raised that, you know, that, that the level of competition um, did not sufficiently prepare her for a moment when she would get punched in the mouth. And that's what Wang Kiang did to her uh, in, in the third round. Was she unfit? You know, was she not, you know, sufficiently ready for it? I, I am not particularly sure. I don't have a str- I don't have a strong opinion on that. Uh, I think that when a, when an opponent plays extremely well as Wang did in that match in Australia, you're going to look slower. You know, when you, when you when if, if you're a, as a tennis player, if someone else is hitting very precise ground strokes and making few errors as Wang uh, did in that match. You know, you're going to be caught out of position at times, and that's that. That might be, uh, to a certain extent, you know, the uh, it might reflect that your your lack of fitness is being exploited or exposed. But it's also because the other uh, player is playing really well, and so I, I think a lot of that loss to Wang. I think the the lion's share of the credit needs to go to Wang for how well she played. We're so used to seeing Serena pull through those kinds of matches, and it just didn't happen this time. And and so that that strikes me as a rare event and not a, a glaring indicator of deterioration. That having been said, she is 38, and at some point, father time, or in this case, I guess we should say mother time, uh, catches up with an athlete. You know, we're also going through this with Roger Federer and how uh, physically limited he was for portions of the Australian Open. So it's a very difficult debate. You could say that, you know, oh, this is the year when time is catching up to her. But you can also say, you know, she usually doesn't lose those kinds of matches. And we saw a number of really aberrational matches uh, at the Australian Open, one being, you know, Rafa Nadal losing three tiebreakers in a five-set match that had never happened before. So is that a, it was Serena's loss in Australia an indicator and was her Fed Cup performance, which was generally sluggish, is that an indicator? 
Maybe. And I, I like to remind our listeners from time to time that, you know, it's sexy and it's fashionable and it's confident and it's bold to say, aha, I have the answer. But really, it's, it's something that commentators need to be willing to say more often. You know what? I don't know. Or I'm not sure. And I really am not sure in this case. This is, this is something new for Serena within the context of the last three years, Sakib. You know, we didn't see her play a full season in either 2018 or 2019 with either the injuries and, or illnesses that she's had. So this is a season in which she started healthy and she still is relatively healthy. Now, does that mean that she's supremely fit? Not necessarily, but you know, let's say Serena goes through a full 2020 season. Is that, is that going to be better for her? Maybe, but it could also be worse for her because when she came to Wimbledon in both 2018 and 2019, she did not have a lot of match play. And so while there was some degree of rust in her game, she did not have a lot of tread on the tires in those seasons. And so she made the Wimbledon and U.S. Open finals in the second half of the season because she didn't play much in the first half. So is pl- going to be is playing a full 2020 paradoxically going to hurt her at the more important tournaments? That is a, the fascinating question that I'm thinking about for Serena Williams in 2020. Yeah, I think uh, Matt just want to add. I mean, she's someone who's had a career of you know, uh, you know, making these uh, these kind of comebacks, re- rediscovering her form, or even reinvent her from losing position. So you're absolutely right. Uh, these two performances combined in Australia and Fed Cup. You know, we can't. Uh, th- these could be outliers, but these could be a beginning of a trend. But again, you know, Serena has too great of a resume to make them as uh, indicators of, you know, things to come. So, yeah, I think uh, the season's wide open as far as I see her scheduling and performance. And uh, anytime she's on the court, you know, she'll be talked about. But, yeah, it's, it's even, as like I said, she looked, it's, uh, it's not an indicator even in my books. So let's wrap this segment up, Matt, unless you have something else uh, that needs to be shared on this platform. I was just saying, uh, you know, the tennis world is waiting for Kim Kleister's return in, in Dubai. Uh, you know, that that is something just over the horizon. It's one of the more significant events on the tennis calendar in the month of February. So we're, we're definitely looking forward to that down the line. And I also want to just say to our listeners, um, you know, uh, I don't get a salary for for writing, and I've had a, a more freelance uh, professional writing responsibilities this year, things that I get paid for. So, you know, there hasn't been nearly the same volume of coverage, but for the uh, WTA events in Doha and, and uh, Dubai, uh, you know, we're going to be all over that, and we're definitely going to be all over um, Indian Wells and Miami. So for all of the important tournaments this year, you're going to get the full coverage, but like for, for slower weeks, such as this past one, you know, with a, with just with just two fifties, um, you know, in the lower tier tournaments, yet you're not going to get quite the, quite as much everyday coverage. But we're definitely going to be there for all the especially significant events. You know, Masters, Premier Fives, um, pr- Premier Mandatories, and, and and all those events, you're you're always going to get steady daily written coverage of tennis with an accent. Okay, so on that note, this is Sakib and Matt uh, signing off uh, on this episode of Tennis with an Action. We'll be back with another episode in a week's time. 
Uh, thanks for listening and bye for now.